in Wonderland podcast. So this is a place for you to let your sense of wonder, imagination, but most importantly, your sense of curiosity loose. I'm Georgia Alice and today I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Sarkis. Now normally I don't read out a person's bio on my podcast. I just have a brief intro, but I love Sarah's short bio. So I'm going to I'm going to read it out. So Dr. Sarah Sarkis is a psychologist, writer, and performance consultant with a private, uh, a private practice in Honolulu, Hawaii. Her integrated approach is big on science, low on bullshit, empowering her clients to achieve long-term change and growth through an eclectic blend of psychology, neurobiology, and functional medicine. So let's get curious. Welcome. Is it Sarah or Dr. Sarah? You can call me Sarah. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. I'm really super pumped to um, go down the rabbit hole with you. And I'm sure we're going to go down lots of different rabbit holes based on just your bio alone. There's so many things we can go down and, and tackle and explore together. So before we get started, one of the key things I ask every one of my guests is a key question, just so we get a sense of who you are and how you feel you're turning up in the world. And the question goes a little like this. Well, actually, it goes exactly like this. I want you to imagine that I'm seven-year-old Alice, skipping my way through Wonderland, and I bumped into Dr. Sarah. And I see you and I go, Dr. Sarah, what is it that you do in this world? What, how do you contribute? What's your passion? How would you answer that to a seven-year-old girl? That's such a great question. Well, the, the answer that I usually say when people want me to sort of summarize what I do is I say that I am a person that keeps people's secrets. So that's how my job feels to me. Like people come in to my office, they talk about really um, intimate and nuanced parts of their life. And they know that, you know, barring a few very specific situations that it will go nowhere. So I see myself as this companion that sort of, you know, keeps people's narratives in some semblance for them. So a safe place. You're like the secret keeper. Yeah. I mm -hmm. keep people's secrets. I mean, that's how I feel. If you strip away a lot of what, um, good therapy does is that it provides people a space where they know that they are safe in terms of anything ever sort of coming back around to them. Mm -hmm. And that's 
really unusual now in this day and age, right? Where everything can be essentially tracked and found. And yeah, absolutely. And you're right in this day and age, and even just the, the slightest thing, like there's cameras on every corner of most, most cities. So, you know, even if you want to escape and get away, people know where you are. They track you. Oh, yeah. They can You're track you with watched. your bank card. We can track you with your phone. Yes. There's, no, there's no secrets, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, so I feel, and I really take that um, that privilege very, very seriously. I don't talk about my patients. My husband, my, I always joke that I married like the perfect person because he has no interest in asking about my work and I wouldn't have talked about it anyway. So um you know, I, I really, other than a handful of um, colleagues who I really trust clinically, I don't talk about my cases ever. And only then would I talk about it if I really felt as though I was stuck. Mm. Something felt really stuck or stagnant or kind of like I couldn't quite figure out what one of the puzzle pieces was. So how did you, what was the the steps that led you to where you are today? So you actually, you know, you, you, you cover a lot of different modalities. As you said, it's very eclectic what you do. So what were the steps that first of all got you, was the first step psychology and what got you there? What was the interest? How did you get to be, become that? Yeah, that's like the million dollar question. And now at 44, I'm like, yeah, Sarah, what were you thinking at 24? committing to like a lifetime in this one profession. But um, basically I was at undergrad at Georgetown University and I was an English major and a psych major and I loved both of them equally. And I, I, that was a period of time in my life where my family of origin was in a lot of flux. My mom and dad, had, I'm the youngest of six. So my mom and dad had separated my, basically like my freshman or sophomore year of college and there was just a lot of flux in my family. Um, and I remember that the feeling that drove me towards psychology versus um, writing was that psychology seemed like, um, I felt really passionate about both, but psychology seemed like a straighter line. Like it seemed like if I did these steps, I was gonna become a psychologist. And the writing to my 22-year-old self felt super nebulous and uncertain. People were like, just move to New York and like, see what happens. I'm like, what are you talking about? See what happens. So I think for me, it was sort of equal parts that I kind of have a basic temperament. And we you know, we know each other from this training that we're in, so you know a little bit about me. But I have kind of a basic temperament that's introspective. and um, then it seemed like a really good gig that I would be able to have a career that felt like stable and secure and, um, and also interesting. So I did that. I, I, that, that's sort of the initial thing that drove me. And actually the beginning of my career was spent primarily in the study of forensic psychology. Um, so I, you know, did a lot of my, a lot of the things that interested me were what were the developmental origins of people that committed really atrocious crimes. So I was really interested in like serial murderers, serial rapists, serial pedophiles. That became the area that intrigued me the most. Um, 
So I sort of, that's how I got into the field of psychology. And I spent many years throughout my training, both my master's and my doctorate, and um, for many years afterward in prisons, working in um, doing court-ordered evaluations in uh, jails, basically. Men, it was all men then that were waiting trial mm-hmm. on various types of criminal charges. So, uh, and then I always had like a small private practice on the side. Um, so yeah, that's sort of how I went down that path. It was like equal parts passion and it felt stable to me. Mm. So there's so many things that popped up when you were talking there. So one of the things was, you know, what, first of all, how long, how long have you been practicing, um, as a psychologist? So from the, you know, you've, 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 um, graduated and now you've got your own practice. So how long has that been? Cause that's going to, that's, it's a long road. So I went basically right from college. I got my master's that took two years. I went from my master's into my doctoral program. That was, um, I did it in three years because I went to a program where you went year round. So it really would have been four years, but I just didn't have any summers. You had two weeks in the fall, two weeks at Christmas and two weeks in the middle of the summer. So, um, and then you do an internship and a postdoc. So all in, you know, you're at seven to eight years of training. And so I was like 30 when I finished school and I was about 32 when I got licensed, but you can, you're working in clinical settings long before that. Yeah. So, but my private practice, so I, I live, as you noted earlier, I live now in Honolulu, but I'm a Boston girl through and through. And I was, um, had a a private practice in Boston. That's where I did all my friends at work as well. And, um, so yeah, I opened my private practice. I've been probably 13 or 14 years now in it, two different locations, two different cultures, but essentially the same business model. So over those 13 odd years of, of private practice, there's a couple of questions I've got based on that. First of all is what has been, what would you see as some of your, your own challenges in keeping people's secrets using your language? And what has been some of your greatest lessons through this? Because you're working with other people and I have this uh, really strong belief that we, we learn so much more from the people we're helping as a, I'm going to use the term loosely coach as a coach. Um, I get so much more out of my clients and I think sometimes I give them. So, yeah. So what are some of the key sort of challenges and, and lessons you have had personally for yourself through doing this work? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I don't know if I have like specifics, but those are great questions. I'll, I'll sort of start them backwards. So I tell patients all the time that in a successful therapeutic relationship, I'm going to grow and learn as much both about the patient and myself as they are, because that's how it works. It's a mutually beneficial connection. So really the the number of things that I've learned is endless because I could go through every patient I've had over the decades and tell you sort of what it was in that case 
that I got. But so it's endless and you're totally right. You learn a ton, right? You learn, I've learned gentleness. I've learned how to let silence do its work. I've learned that oftentimes the words are not what they remember that they take away from at the end. I've learned how to say goodbye. You say goodbye to every person. The point of them coming in your office is that you put yourself out of a job so they don't need you forever. Uh, so I've just learned, I've just become a better woman from doing this job for so many years. Um, and I would say all those things that I learned in each relationship and continue to learn um, are the things that I had to work on. That was what I needed from that relationship. Uh, you know, recently, I think in my 40s and now 44. So now um, one of the things I'm really attuned to is intuition. And I remember as a kid being somebody who had, um, I guess it was a lot of intuition. I didn't know what it was at the time. I just knew how I processed the world. But there were years in there where I felt it was less accessible to me. Maybe more academic stuff was accessible to me. You know, lots of different stages in your training. Um, but now I feel an intuition or a, I feel like I, know how to work with people in a way that doesn't feel like I have to think about it anymore. So that's sort of what I feel most now in my forties, but I've, I've learned and grown just, I mean, I can't even imagine how stunted emotionally I would be if I hadn't gotten into this profession. Yeah. I, I second that. And look, I'm not a trained psychologist, but dealing with people and coaching people has made me become a better person and a better woman. I really believe that. And so I'd love to talk to you more around the intuition piece. Uh, intuition sort of been crossing my paths a lot lately. And, you know, I, a lot of people aren't quite sure what intuition is and some people are sure and some people are very intuitive. So what's your take on What's your personal views? You don't need any science to back this up, but just what do you think intuition is and how can we tap into it more? Yeah, so for me, the way that I feel, so I'm somebody who perceives the world through feeling. That's one of the things I try to look for in my patients is how is it that they um, metabolize the world that they're experiencing and everybody has their own unique way that they they absorb their world. And I am somebody that absorbs it through feeling. And so for me, and you know, intuition is a, it's a woo, it's a more woo woo word than I would typically even use. But the way that I experience it is, it's almost just this feeling like everything is flowing there's our training program. Everything is sort of flowing through me and I'm totally present, therapeutically speaking, with the person in this moment. And I can feel that they feel that as well, that they can genuinely feel this space between us. 
So that, that's how I experience it therapeutically. And it really provides me, now that I have the fund of knowledge and I have years of experience and, um, and I have a basic confidence that comes with the passage of time, I can use and tune into that space much more often because I'm not, I, I'm not burdened by some of the things that burdened me as an early clinician. Have you, have you ever had a sense of an intuitive sense that has delivered you some form of information or a nudge or whatever you want to, whatever, however you want to describe it, that hasn't come from your knowledge base? So I think there's, I don't know, because I, I sometimes I experience, I, I say that was intuitive, but potentially it may have been me just my something bubbling up from my subconscious memory, giving me an idea that fits in really nice here. And then sometimes I've been with a client or not even with a client, just living my life. And I get these flashes of insight of information and thoughts and ideas that I have no idea where they come from. And they're actually not aligned with anything I've been taught before or anything that I could remember crossing, crossing my paths, my conscious mind. So have you ever had those sort of flashes with a client where you've just got this insight and you've said something, you've asked this perfect question that just came from nowhere? Yeah. Yes. And I think that one of the things I've learned to do is to say it out loud when it happens so that, you know, because you have a relationship with the people that I work with, I have a, you know, an intimate relationship with. So if it's not, if it doesn't land well or whatever, we can just discard it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you log a lot of hours sitting face to face with people when you're a therapist. So I'm sure that I've asked questions where, you know, I don't, I feel like that's most of the questions I ask. Mm -hmm. I don't really have, like, I'm not somebody that goes in to the partnership with an agenda I'm definitely not burdened with trying to figure out what's wrong with them. I'm really just trying to show up and be completely present and available for whatever unfolds. And then it's through the passage of time that you can really help people start to see their story and their narrative in a way that they may, they may not see it because it's, you know, a that's happening to them. But so, I mean, most of my, like, I don't have an intake. I, there's an intake that my patients, if they want to come and see me and now consulting clients as well, that they have to fill out. But I don't have like set questions I ask people when they sit down in front of me. And uh, I like it that way. Just like I noticed when I got your email about taping this, right? you you sort of say exactly what I say, but mine's to clients and I don't tape it. Um, which is, I say, you know, we're just going to have a conversation and I'm going to ask lots of questions and take us down lots of different paths and we're going to see where it goes. And that's really the strategy that has yielded the best results. I'll tell you this, universally, so there's like a long period of time where most patients, when they're beginning to come into therapy, they'll sort of like prepare things they want to think and talk about for the session. And you can get tons of great data. That's what I call it. Data. Um, 
in sessions like that. Those are nothing to sneeze at. But the best ones, and inevitably in every long-term partnership, there comes a moment where somebody walks through the door and they say some version of this. You know, I don't really have anything to talk about today. And I'm always like, because that's the best days. The best days, they're basically saying, I've not used any of my cerebral cortex to deal with creating an agenda here. And I'm wide open. And so usually the best stuff surfaces for both of us. I'm probably a better therapist in those sessions because I like them better. So a question for you, and this is something that we all have, we all have unconscious bias, right? And one of the things you said earlier was that, you know, people come to you and you don't, um, you're not trying to fix them, so to speak. You're not there trying to diagnose a problem within them or try to fix them. You're there to have a conversation with them. So how, how do you manage your own unconscious bias in those instances where somebody's talking? Are you ever, do you ever go this, oh, this person's got X, Y, and Z, and this is why this has happened? And do you have this unconscious bias bubble up? And if it does, how do, do you, you deal do? with that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm like, just suffer from being a mere mortal. So I'm sure I do. Right. What, what you're not, sure. you're not above us. You're not, you're not better than exactly. that. I don't know. The so I'm sure that I do have, um, biases and, but, um, what I try to do is you try to listen to what they're saying and I just try to sort of get out of the way enough so that I can navigate what I think might be helpful because usually people come in and they have a reason for referral they come in first of all nobody comes to me because they feel good so like you just right off the bat know that you're getting an audience um, who is struggling with something. So usually in the first several sessions, I'm going to be asking questions that focus around whatever kind of symptoms they're coming in with. And then, but most of the time, I'm just trying to ask enough broad questions to get a sense of how do they think? How do they feel? How do they process their world? through feeling, what are their sort of, what kinds of senses do they use primarily, right? Are they somebody that really listens? Are they people that you have to be looking at them in the eye for them to really focus? You're just trying to figure out all these different elements that kind of make up who they are. But really long ago, um, I stopped being somebody that looks for diagnoses. I have to use diagnoses if you if you use health insurance in America, almost everybody that has it will try to use their health insurance for therapy. And in Hawaii that's especially true. And um so you have to make a diagnosis. But I see diagnoses and, and that whole avenue of trying to figure out sort of like what's wrong with somebody I see it merely as a necessary requirement of the current system, yeah. but it doesn't 
tell me anything else. I mean, I guess there's a few diagnoses that are significant to know and they really change the course of treatment. So, Question on diagnoses, because I'm really curious about this, is do you find, like if someone comes to you and you, you need to make a diagnosis so they can you know, use their health insurance for it, do you find making a diagnosis disempowering or empowering of the individual? One sorry, sorry for my cat. That's okay. <laughs> um, okay, so I find that di- I don't even talk to patients about diagnoses. Um, there have been a handful of times in the last, you know, decade and a half where I've truly been sort of stumped. I couldn't tell if somebody sort of was struggling with, let's say, significant but non-illness-based self-regulatory stuff or if they had, say, bipolar, right? And in that case, that really changes the course of treatment. So in that case, I will talk to a patient and I will be honest and say, hey, listen, I've always told you that I'd have no bullshit. I would be truthful with you. Because along with the fact that they are going to come in and bear their soul to you is I have to be honest. I have to be somebody who is worth that kind of privilege. So then I'll involve them in the, in the diagnoses. But otherwise, I don't even talk to patients about it. And um, here in Honolulu, the community is small enough here. You know, we're less than a million people on Oahu, which is where I live. So now I have a practice that um, people kind of know what they're coming for. Mm -hmm. They know that they generally, they're going to know they want to work with me and the way that I work. They've probably been referred by somebody I worked with or somebody I know. Um, So it's not even like, like I keep my DSM, which is like the manual that has all the diagnoses. in the bathroom. It's like, I just don't think it's an interesting book. I don't, it's not the kind of work I do. Mm. So I just don't even, you know, I just use I'm just curious whether, cause sometimes I think it can go either way with the diagnosis as in empowering or disempowering. So um, let's say for instance, somebody has a diagnosis of bipolar. That's important that they know. Yeah, but is it also when that happens, does that then help empower them to manage it or do then they live by that diagnosis and it becomes an excuse for their behaviour without trying to, without moving through or being able to work through a healing process, if there is a healing process. I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know. So, you know, that's one example where I think, is there an opportunity for let's label this and it'll help you. And then let's label this and actually it's going to make you worse. Now you're going to use that as a crutch. So do you see any of that happening with people when they label something, like they label a, a, an issue that they're coming to you for and it gets labeled? Does it help or does it just block them? I don't really see stuff like that because I yeah. use it so infrequently. But I will say like, the example of bipolar, like that's one of the challenges. And I think probably people's responses are as varied as people are, right? You're just going to, 
ultimately we take what we absorb from the outside world and we filter it through our neurobiology. And our neurobiology is, is unique, but it is patterned. All humans create patterns in their life. It's what our brain does. And so, you know, you're going to have one person do one thing with the diagnosis, another person do this, and endless. But there, bipolar is a good example of one of those illnesses where, at least as far as I know right now, um, and, and I think that it, it can be misdiagnosed, it's complicated, it's difficult, medication compliance is um, a, pro, a, a, a difficulty also with this mental illness. But um, it is one of those mental illnesses that the best we have right now is a combination of medication and therapy. That combination seems to work best for people, but you know, for the most part, I don't even, I've somehow managed to remove myself from that world entirely. And even when I was working with more acutely, people really struggling acutely, um, I somehow just like didn't talk about it. Yeah. And they just don't give it a label. You just treat them as the person in front of you as a human being. And we see through the, the label, and this is what I'm imagining you doing, going, let's just throw the label at the door. You're a human being here trying to optimize and live a beautiful life, a fulfilled life. How can we do that? How can we make that yeah. work for you? You're unique. You have your own set of circumstances. And as you said before, patterning that is unique to you. So how can we help you through that? And that's what I'm imagining a session with you would probably be like. Yeah, it's a good, pretty cool. It's a very, right? good, very good summary, in fact. <laughs> there you go. So, one of the things you mentioned before was this patterning. So, talk to us a little bit more for the listeners to understand what this patterning is. Because you said, you know, the brain works in patterns. So, then how does that then affect us as we're going through our life? Yeah. So, the way that I try to explain it to my patients is this is that when I talk about trying to understand people neurobiologically and that's a word if you work with me or you know talk to me you hear me use a lot so can you and unpack so, that for our listeners what neurobiology neurobiology sure. is yes, I can just say it. sure so if i had to sort of say it in a sentence i would say it like this so when we're born um you know first of all i tell all my patients is um you know, we got to agree on a couple of things before we, we have to have a mutually agreed upon reality. First, we are animals. Our animal is called sapiens, but we're animals. We're nothing special. We're great, but we're not special. We're animals. And we follow all the rules and the regulations that being a sapien governs. So we have this brain and when we're born, our brain is, um, it's not integrated. The hemispheres aren't integrated. Our sight isn't very good. Supposedly you can only see about seven inches, which is the distance from the face to the breast. So you have this creature. We're also one of the most dependent animals born and we're dependent for the longest period of time. We're incredibly vulnerable and fragile. We can't even hold the neck up. An, a juvenile sapien, if they are abandoned at birth, will die. There's really no, I mean, I guess there's those stories of like a wolf pack coming and like taking one away, but for the most part, abandoned sapiens don't fare well. 
we don't fare well um, physically, and we really don't fare well emotionally. We're very susceptible to emotional damage when attachment is involved. And so this brain comes online, so to speak, although I don't love that, um, that um, description. And in fact, I'll use the phrase that we love from uh, Zach Stein. Zach right? Stein, yes, out of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's actually, the developmental process is an organic process and it's unfolding throughout our development and that includes adult development but there is this acute period of development let's say gestation to um, let's say 10 and in that stretch of time a lot of our neurobiology gets laid down and it comes from all of our experiences and i think of it as like like phyllo dough or like like thin layers that get laid over and our brain starts to make these integrated connections. And that's how we start to make meaning and purpose of our life. And, you know, at first we don't even know, you know, when babies are absorbing the world, they hear noise, they don't hear words. So all of this contributes to what our neurobiology is and it lays down neural patterns, patterns of movement, patterns of eyesight, patterns of memory, patterns of attachment. All these patterns govern who we become in the trajectory of our life. And so for a lot of the work that fascinates me um, and that I think I I, I excel at this part of, there's lots of places where I have shortcomings as a therapist, but one of the places that comes intuitively to me is trying to deeply understand how someone's neurobiology became wired the way that it is currently when they're working with me. And then trying to make um, tiny micro shifts you know, it's moving a tanker, it's tiny, tiny micro shifts over time that result in really long-term change patterns. So, you know, I'm not like a behavioralist really, although I work with lots of um, behavioral cases, but it's not like my jam. It's not what I love. I like that deeper work of really helping people to understand that I say to people all the time, if they're, especially if they're criticizing themselves, I say, you are exactly the animal you were raised to be. You are exactly the person that your world and your environment shaped you to be. Because most of us are, even when that's horrifying. <laughs> Most of us so are exactly. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. That's something that's been, that was one of my big aha moments many years ago when I was going through a personal trauma was realizing that the person I was was shaped by the sum total of my experiences, my environment, the people in my world. I was the product of that. And I found that really liberating because I thought, well, hang on. I now have the ability to think for myself. Can I now rewrite that? 
can I now change that? And that became very liberating. So do you find with the people you work with that when they're starting to realize that there is this pattern, that there is this, they're a meaning making machine that's happened over a period of time and they can actually rewrite that. Is that something that shifts for people and it, is that liberating? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's it. That's the thing, right? Mm-hmm. And from the moment that they recognize that to actually seeing change is arduous. And, you know, this is trying to take like a scalpel to tiny nuanced components of what have become habits. They are thought habits, behavioral habits, interpersonal habits, intrapersonal habits, how we orbit in and around our own being. And these, that they're going to take time. That it's way easier. Like I always tell people, a lot of times people will come in, right? Like a classic example. Somebody will come in and they have a phobia. And, you know, you can get rid of a phobia within 16 sessions. But the thing is, is if you don't get to the reason why they developed phobias as a coping skill, they will leave your office and it's like clockwork. And I say to them, when they, most of the time they're like, thanks, I'm able to fly now. I appreciate that. Oh, I got my driver's license, whatever it was, right? Whatever the phobia was. I can publicly speak. Okay. We get the phobia done. And I always say to people, hey, listen, you know, you sort of got what you came for. Now, there's a reason why you snuggled into this neurobiology and I snuggled into something else. And there's no better or worse. It just is. And we can turn our attention now because you're not in crisis to what that is. Or you can leave and you can you know, this was a success. You got what you wanted. And now most of the time you're like, no, no, I want to stay. But when I was first starting out, I would convey this probably less convincingly. And they would, sometimes they would leave and I would say to them, but you're going to, you're going to be back in this office in six months because the phobia isn't dealt with at the core. It's just at the behavioral level. And that's the low-hanging fruit of the psychological world in the sense that it's the tip of the iceberg that shows through. But if we don't get to the iceberg, it will just show up somewhere else. So somebody has a phobia. Oh, there was fear of public speaking. Great. Solves it. Okay. Comes back. You know, oh, now I have a fear of driving on highways. Okay. And they'll bounce from symptom to symptom. So they get to that core interest. I talk about it as core existential intersections and everybody's got them, myself included. And um, so that's the big journey that's. So how do you just, and without, you know, cause we're not going to have a, a session here or anything like that, but how would you typically help somebody get to that, that core is it through questioning how does that how does that happen how does someone find the core reason or the core cause for a phobia it just happens and that might go back to the intuitive part of the talk yeah i don't know how or why i'm effective 
I don't really know. And I tell people like, I don't actually know, you know, I know I'm trained really well. I, I'm, I'm bright. I'm really curious and I'm, can be really present. Um, but I don't actually know why it is that what I do is effective, but I now just trust that it is and feel mm -hmm. like, you know, like, yeah, you really stumbled into a profession that you have an aptitude for. And, um, so it's different for everybody. I mean, I, but everybody's got something. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> Absolutely. All do. And all I'm freakishly curious about is what that is. And so I'm just constantly like, when I think about my brain in a session, I'm trying to like absorb it, process it and be like, okay, yeah, that sort of sounds like a hunch on something that I had or something that they said six months ago about this other thing. And I'm looking for, you know, sometimes you're looking at content, the words between us. Sometimes you're looking at process, the bigger, um, the bigger like exchange that's happening. That's not necessarily word. It's not, it's not moment to moment. Right. Um, sometimes you are just trying to, you know, sometimes people come in, they're agitated or they're really grief stricken. You know, those are periods of time where you have to have the nuance to know that like, you got to just sit with it with them. You got to let silence and just empathy do its work. So I don't really know how it works, but it works. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad I, I'm really glad that I followed through on this at 24 when I decided to, because, um, you know, I bet my friends from high school would say that I was doing this back then. Yeah. Now I'm trained and skilled and I have credentials and whatever, but like I was always the person people were coming to. Mm -hmm. so, so natural and innate within you. So here's something you said that, you know, we've all got these little, I'm going to call them quirks. I'm not going to label them or anything. We've got these things that just are patterned within us. And so people come to you for, for help and guidance and um, to be the keeper of their secrets, where do you go? How do you get support? Yeah, that's a great question. So for many years, I'm actually not in therapy right now, um, but many years throughout the years, I've been in lots of different forms of therapy and um, including analysis for many years, five days a week. And, um, so my self-care game is solid. I'm somebody who, like, my siblings always joke with me that, like, basically in another life, I was, like, a cat that was, like, carried on a pillow, like, and, like, had people just, like, fawning over me. Um, because I'm somebody who I really have always taken the time each day to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. It's something that for a really long time, I just thought like, God, you're selfish. Like you have to have this hour. Um, but now I realize I was like, no, you were ahead of the game. Um, I, I was just early to the game of self-care. 
So I do, you know, I meditate, I do mindfulness. I have a colleague who I know you know really well, my friend Rachel. We talk every day and we'll, you know, really lean on each other in that way. Um, I do the sauna, I exercise. So those are the ways that I care for myself. You were ahead of the game because it's now becoming a bit of a, um, in this world we're living in, people are just hitting burnout and they're, they're overdoing it in so many different things, you know, whether you're a business owner, whether you're in a career, whatever it might be, male and female, I'm seeing it everywhere. It's almost like society is just really decided that you're not good enough unless you're burnt out. <laughs> it's just not good. So it's great to hear that you've been practicing this self-care for a long time. So what would you recommend people, what would you recommend people maybe start at if they're not doing any self-care? What would be a good thing to explore for themselves to start making it a habit to look after themselves uh, as they're navigating this complexity, chaos, burnout? Yeah. So that's a great question. And I actually have a blog too on this that outlines the five things. But I always tell all my patients, I say, you know, we're going to do this work. This is, and the relationship is really what is going to do the work. It's going to be the space between us and the, the, the intimacy that we can create in knowing you. It's a unique relationship, right? It's not reciprocal. They don't know me the way that I know them. So I said, but there's five other things you can do every single solitary day. You can eat nutritionally dense food, drink mostly water, get eight hours of sleep, move your body, and focus on recovery. And I would define recovery as... Um, some form of practice it doesn't have to be physically still but it creates psychological stillness and brain stillness that is non-sleep based so what would be an example of some things like that for our listeners some some meditation yeah mindfulness yoga i think my husband gets it from going to the golfing range it like it's a repetitive thing that he does over and over again he's completely absorbed in his own embodiment and he comes back refreshed mm. so there's a thousand ways people can paint you can create music there's a million ways the non-sleep rest is more specific to mindfulness and meditation yeah so, but there's a million ways that you can invest in an interior sense of stillness where you're really, wor you are really observing your brain's default mode network. Should I unpack that? Yeah, we'll Do get that? you to unpack that. Okay. So default mode network being how does your brain orbit and what are the frequencies that are going on inside your brain and mind? and body when your brain is not occupied. So I always want every person that comes through my door and especially the more and more I've started to work with um, people in corporate 
you know, CEOs, CFOs, that kind of heads of hospitals, doctors, that kind of brain that's sort of on all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm always in the background running an assessment of what their default mode network looks like. What happens to them when they are not occupied by this cognition that we have, the cerebral cortex, our ability to think, all of that that we all rely on heavily. And you know, it's a big contributor to why we rose above instinct and became humans, right? So it's nothing to sneeze at, but it is a burden. So I want to know that and then the, the non-sleep rest version of that is that you're actually, if you're using a meditation, you are often, in mindfulness, you're just observing that process. What is it like for you? And with meditation, you're actually trying to dim it. You're really trying to dim the cerebral cortex and get it to be not so active. So those two practices alone, mindfulness and meditation, I mean, it's like you'd think I was pulling their teeth out with pliers from the yard. It's like, you know, it's, it's a project. I can convince people, and I've been now two different cultures, right? Boston, Hawaii, they could not be more different. And I ask the same thing of every single client, male and female. And it is the only thing that every patient has consensus on, which is, oh, I don't want to do that. Now, there might be, there might be, it may come cloaked differently. One person may say they don't have time. The other person might be like, I'm just not going to do it. Some people forget. So there's lots of different reasons why it's the hardest thing to do. But usually by the end, I've convinced them all to do it. Yeah. And they benefit from it. I love your distinction between meditation and mindfulness. So mindfulness is being mindful of the state that you're in, so to speak, if I use that terminology. So I'm mindful that even though I might be doing something that is um, quite easy, comes naturally, my mind hasn't switched off. We, we can be mindful of that. Exactly. So then when you go, but when you're going into meditation, it's like you've got a dimmer switch and you can actually start to now move that you can consciously choose to turn that down and actually rest really rest, yeah rest yeah that. and then there's thousands of different types of meditations right and yeah. i'm not like an expert on meditation but there's guided meditations there's yoga nidra there's transcendental meditation there's mindfulness-based st stress reduction with john kabat-zinn that's what i'm trained in um but yeah mindfulness is so mindfulness is the critical piece to insight. If you can't get to a place therapeutically with me, and I've never had somebody not be able to get there. It's hardwired in the human brain to be able to do this. We do it all day long when we're beating the shit out of ourselves. But it's much harder to do it, to observe, right? When somebody's ruminating on like, oh, I said I was so such an idiot and why did I do it that way? They're doing a form of mindfulness. They're observing their experience while it's happening. But it seems the critical piece is being able to do it from a neutral standpoint. 
Mm -hmm. That is a practice and a muscle, just like any other habit or pattern that forms in our brain. And um, we are, sapiens are uniquely qualified to learn this skill, but it does take practice. And the practice is um, difficult. I mean, I, you know, I sympathize. I'm asking people to um, stay present when they really want to, you know, pick your vice, yeah. pick your point, whatever it is, right? Um, and so they're paying attention. They're, they're con bringing to their conscious awareness how they're feeling and thinking in a given moment. And by doing that, they then have the ability to well, what we do unconsciously is probably judge that. We judge that whatever it is, oh, I'm so stupid, or I did this, or I did that. Whereas if we do it from a point of being consciously aware and no judgment, we look at it and go, wow, that's what I just did. No attachment to it. And is that where you see people starting to make a shift in their results and a shift in their noticing what they're doing that led them potentially to burnout and the beliefs and the the thoughts that they're overlaying over a process that gets them there. Like people get to burnout because they think they have to be a certain way to prove a certain thing to certain people. And it just, it just keeps going on and on. And it's getting, it's getting out of control to be quite honest, I think, unless people have got some sort of practice with what you're, what you're talking about here to be able to bring yourself back to actually think about the bigger picture in it all. Yeah. I mean, it's true. It's a muscle of observation or self-reflection it's just a practice and um it allows us sort of eventually and it's arduous but um this is why i say this is the harder work than the behavioral we can get rid of the behaviors pretty quick but deep down deep down where change really happens um it's a long process but you have this observation shrinks call it an observing ego it's like you know you're observing it like i I always use a phrase, and, and as a therapist, you do this for your patient. You observe them. And so sometimes you're saying, you know, what I'm observing is this, right? And you're trying to put words that hopefully they'll internalize, right? So I always say to them, I offer a suggestion. When you start to observe something about yourself, like, oh, I'm doing that again. Like, oh, see, I'm doing that. Like, you're saying it to yourself oh, I just did that again, whatever that is. And usually for myself and my patient, we have identified what that thing is that we would be looking at. And here's the really important piece about the type of work that I do, is that we're looking for the unconscious patterns, the stuff that you're not even aware of. So anything that you've come into therapy to talk about, all the symptoms that you've come in, the reason for referral, it's helpful because it gives us a starting point, but it's not where we're really going to land. And, um, and those unconscious patterns are usually the things you're going to start to observe about yourself through a practice of mindfulness. And you definitely won't observe them without it. Mm. You just won't. Yeah. We're too patterned and we're used to just doing what we do because we do it every day. And really this kind of self-observation is, it's the critical piece. 
it's that ability to observe your own relationship with yourself. And it's sort of, it's, it's full circle. It comes back to the patterns that are formed and then you're starting to see, see the patterns by the self-observation. And then you can start to understand why you're doing the things you are because you've taken the time out to observe and you go, oh, I see this pattern and I see why I think I need to be, you know, doing a certain thing a certain way because this happened at a certain time when I was developing and okay, yes. does this serve me? Does it not serve me? And then we work through the arduous process of potentially arduous. changing that. Yeah. Yes. Arduous. Yeah. 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 So when we're talking arduous, what does it, what does it look like? What's something? So let's say I've just discovered that I'm trying to think of something now that I've got this um, tendency to, gosh, I'm trying to think of something because, you know, I'm perfect. I'm not really. Um, <laughs> actually, I'll ask you, what would be a common thing that somebody would come in to potentially see you for and you find that there's a common thread with some people that they need to, that they want to, they're choosing to change about themselves? Is there something that's sort of a common? Yeah, but I mean, even if they came in like, and there was a common thing, for me, what I'm really looking for is the unconscious current that's sort of feeding the behavior. And that's so highly unique. But yeah. essentially, even if I don't give you a specific, because any specific I give you is essentially going to be from a patient, right? Because yeah. that's what my field of data is in my head. Um, but um, you you observe it and honestly the observation takes care of the rest of it but it is arduous and it comes in steps like first you first you don't observe it at all and the therapist is observing it hey did you notice that that you know when i said this or when this topic came up you responded in this particular way i'd like to i always say like i think there's some meat on that bone i'd like to pause there and look at that together and then you sort of rummage around there and see what you can find. And that can be over a session or multiple sessions. It may, that it may unlock something that's, you know, multiple sessions length. So first they don't even notice it. It's totally unconscious. Then it becomes conscious. Now the, 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 con, the unconscious is unidirectional. So once something is conscious, you've had the Oprah was famous for making it the aha moment. The aha moment is the moment in your brain that something that was operating unconsciously, which means it was operating completely out of your emotional sight line, but with considerable influence. So once you're then conscious of it, you can never be unconscious of it again. You can't go back. You can deny it. You can ignore it. You can suppress it. Suppression is conscious. Repression is unconscious. So you can suppress it. You can numb it. You can try to outrun it. You can do things to avoid it, but you can't unknow it. Yeah. So that's the seat. That's where it starts. Now you know it. So it, then you get to a point in your capacity to observe where you can actually realize when you've done it. Oh, I just did that again. But it's still, you're catching it in the rear view mirror. Yeah. Most of us only know a boundary when we've passed it. We're always, oh, it was back there. Same way with the psychological process. Then you can watch people over time. They start to 
see that it's happening in the moment that it's happening. Oh, I, I'm doing that. Then you have people move and it moves methodically like this for all of us. We aren't special. We are animals. So it moves this way and, and methodically and everybody's thing might be different and people have lots of things, right? Mm -hmm. um, but eventually they get to a place where they're now a shoulder length ahead of it. And right at that moment, and I'll usually say, do you see how you're ahead of it now? They can make a choice. That's where free will comes into play. Before that, we are just living out neurobiologically wired patterns that we have almost no control over. Yeah. And we think we do. So when you get there is where people can really start to make those, those changes in how they respond to their feelings, how they react, what they say to themselves, what they say to other people. Then you really see the change starting to happen but you have to go one thing at a you know it's like whack-a-mole yeah one one thing at a time so it's the okay so i'm not aware of it then it comes to conscious awareness now that it's at con conscious awareness i can observe it whether it's behind me or as it gets closer i'm starting to observe it then it comes to a point where i've been knowing that it's there i know what i've got awareness now i've got to do something about it and that's the choice so in this moment now, instead of me having this emotional reaction to what someone says, or maybe instead of me eating the chocolate, or instead of me staying up late, or instead of me checking social media, I'm just using practical things here. I now am at the point of power where I make that choice and I can choose something different. But it's not going to mean that I just chose it once and it's okay. Cause I do this, you know, I talk to my coaching clients like you can't just do it once and think that it's, it's, no. it's a new habit. You've no. got a whole lot of neural wiring to do to create this new version, this, this new pattern for the way that you want to work. That's going to serve you. So really yeah. love that, that whole, you're right. It is arduous and it's step-by-step -step process. And one little bean at a time and we yeah. can't skip steps. Yeah. And you the, also, I think you really want to, the individual has to really want what the change is going to give them to make that choice to, to choose the different alternative. Because a lot of the times people try and change, you know, a habitual thinking, feeling, habit, whatever it is, because somebody else has told them they need to um, and they, they don't do it. But when yeah. it's something that's come from within and they can see, they can yeah, see how it's going to Intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Intrinsic motivation is the key. They have got to want it. We have this phrase in therapy when you're a therapist. A lot of times when you're mentoring somebody that's becoming a therapist or when I was being supervised regularly, you, the, the person training you will say, you're working harder than they are. And that's always the indication to the therapist like you want the change more than they do mm. so then the conversation becomes in the therapy room hey and these aren't easy conversations you know my i have to tell my patients difficult things all the time i have to call them out on bullshit i have to talk about pain and trauma that they've had i have to engage them on aspects of their life that they don't want to talk about um, 
but you know, you have to, and this is one of those times where if you can really sense that, you know, you want it more than they do, you have to bring it up and you have to, you have to let the relationship do the work of like, Hey, you know, I can't want this more than you. Mm. And that gives people an opportunity to either sort of, you know, amicably say, Hey, I got what I need. And I've sort of, I'm not as deeply invested now and I'm ready to scoot um, or double down on the commitment of the work. And those conversations are, um, they're very important and they're very valuable. And it's the way in which like, you know, I say to my patients all the time, like, we're not friends. We have a different relationship. I have great affection. Every person that I work with, I have a unique relationship with that, you know, can only exist because they are their own person. And um, I have deep affection for, but we're not friends. I am not their friend. So I am paid to have the conversations that sometimes your friends will avoid. Yeah. I, one of the things that I love what you just said then, and I think we're going to have to start rounding it up now, but one of the things you said, and I think it's really important for people who lead other people and people um, potentially who are in relationships that, like you said, sometimes as the, let's say the partner, the boss, the coach, the mentor, the therapist, we want and have the desire for their change more than them. We, that they're never going to change unless they've they've got that that desire within themselves. Mm-hmm. So 100%. I think that's just really powerful for anyone leading another person to a destination of what what we believe they want to move towards. If you, as the I'm going to say leader or the coach, therapist, whatever boss, if you're more invested in their change, their behavior change, their thought page, their repatterning than they are, you're wasting your energy. You're wasting your energy and you're wasting their energy. Mm. You know, energy is finite. When we talk about like the burnout, you know, there's a physical process that's happening. It's called adrenal fatigue. So your mind and body and brain are all connected. And so you have this certain amount of bandwidth. And there's no use wasting my time and there's no use wasting their time. And in, you know, you can see this in classic um, partnerships that have substance abuse involved in them. And it's called codependence where one person sort of wants them to be different than they are. Usually it falls in the language of like, I want you sober or I want you, you know, and they want it more than the person who's, using for complicated reasons and it's never there's never an outcome where if you are more invested in another person's change that it works out never works out it has to come internally so what would you what would be some advice you would give to somebody who is in some form of relationship so whether it be boss, subordinate, team leader, team member, therapist, patient, coach, client, whatever it is. And they're finding themselves, you know, hitting their head against a brick wall going, my God, they're not changing. You know, I so want them to change. What would be your advice for those people 
who have people in their lives who have shown a bit of interest in changing but aren't actually putting aren't matching the energy of the person who's trying to help them change what would be some advice for that person so what i would tell the person who would be conveying to me like hey i really want this person to change but they're not changing because i think ultimately this is all an inside job this is you against you so that person would hear from me that what they should be curious about is what is it that's going on inside of them that they're so invested in this person's change versus what's you know you have your own process that's going on and maybe you have you know experiences where you had a parent or a spouse or a loved one or a sibling or some sort of intimate relationship in your life where the person didn't change at your pace and let's look at that because that's driving your own experience of wanting them to change now i would also in the case of if it's a boss um and certainly if it's another um, therapist consultant coach social worker any of the above um to talk to them about it you know if you're in a position where this is related to the work that they have to do or performance um, in my case, it's not about performance, but it's about um, not having a relationship that's built on bullshit. So, like, I don't want to be bullshitted and I don't want you to bullshit me. And, you know, that's not what we're here for. So mm -hmm. that's, it becomes imperative that you create the ability to have these conversations, these hard conversations. And, um, you know, there's a ton of intimacy that comes from those conversations. They, they, when they're done well, and there's lots of strategies and tactics that, you know, could be an entire training seminar on, on how to do those conversations well. Um, but when they're done well, they're just as bonding as, you know, the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember working uh, when I worked in corporate and we're, we're going to tie this up. I think um, one of the, one of the leaders That's there, lovely, people, I think, I think <laughs> um, one of the leaders there, he managed graduates as they came on board and whenever they, they were sent to him, he'd sit down and have a meeting with them and he'd say, I want what you want for your career. I'm going to match your energetic output a hundred percent. So whatever you put into your career, I'll match it. And it's almost like that, you know, I want what you want, but if you're not going to step up, if you're not going to make the change, if you're not going to put in the effort, I'm not either. Yeah. And, and I've sort of taken that into my own practice as well. When I'm with uh, working with people, I'll, I'll say that I'll put in hundred percent. I'll match you hundred percent. But if you don't do the work and if you don't do the reflection you need to do, and if you're not, um, really having a go at making those changes, I, I can't help you. I can't be you. Yeah. Um, and I found that to be a liberating for myself, but also setting boundaries and liberating for the other person to know, well, you know, if I show up, she's showing up. Totally. Oh yeah. yeah. People want boundaries. They really do. Even if it's just the temperament style that likes to push back on them. Mm. human beings like boundaries from a young, I mean, we see it as, you know, primal as the swaddle, 
That's a sense of containment. It's boundaries. Yeah. Um, and the same is true psychologically. And I have found universally in my practice um, that when I'm just honest and real and show up ready to really know them, but, you know, within some structure, most people respond really positively to mm. it. You know, they really do. And they're relieved to the times that I've called patients out on something, like let's use, for example, the I'm working harder than you. And that can show up lots of different ways. Chronic lateness, not paying bills, showing, you know, canceling sessions. It can also just show up by coming in and sort of talking about like, you know, you can just feel when somebody's like on fluff and nonsense. Um, so there's lots of different ways that it shows up, but when I engage them in a conversation about that, they're relieved. You can see, they're like, oh, thank God she's going to bring this up. And, and, and as a shrink, the coolest thing is, is that I'm not burdened by like, my job is to just observe it all. So I'm also not burdened by like, I mean, literally in 15 years, I think I've, I've, terminated with you know two people meaning we've been doing work and then for reasons um i basically said you know i don't think i can work with you that's happened maybe twice um but these conversations happen regularly and what i get to do is just observe it i'm not burdened by the need to be like i'm not a boss that has to like get that kind of performance out of them right I'm not watching over their projects and stuff. So I'm completely relieved and I find it all fascinating, fascinating. And you get to see in yourself ways, like I'm constantly reflecting on like, oh, you know, why didn't you bring that up when that person said, blah, blah, blah. Like what, you know, cause you do, you, you let things pass by sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's the, just the mutual give and take that does happen in therapy. Yeah. Wow. So I'm going to ask a final question, uh, Sarah, Dr. Sarah, if, um, if you were to leave our listeners with some form of advice to help them live a more fulfilled, optimized life, keeping in mind that life isn't all unicorns and rainbows, but you've already talked about the, the you know, having, um, some structure and some, uh, routine in doing some certain activities and five practices. Are there, is there any other advice you'd like to leave for people to help them move forward in their life or to move past something that may be holding them back? I don't know if I would give any advice on the particulars, but I would say this, that the most important relationship that you will invest in ever and the only one that takes you all the way to the finish line is your own relationship with yourself and be curious about it. Approach it from a place of wonder and curiosity about the, what makes you tick. Mm -hmm. And the more that you do that, I have found that the human psychology optimizes naturally. The more that you create a partnership with yourself that is observant and reflective 
you will feel better, perform better, all the betters that people want. Um, and yes, the one of the most important things to know is that there is a natural part of any optimized or peak state. There's a natural cycle that is about struggle. So embrace that too. That, that is, really is where all the good stuff is. Yeah, that is, uh, I love it. Beautiful words of advice to finish up on. So thank you so much. Uh, if you. people want to get hold of you, they can find you on your website, which is, can you just remind me what that is? Yes, it's drdrsarasarkis.com. Excellent. And um, I recommend people jump on board and have a look at some of her blogs. I was reading some blogs before I got on here. We didn't actually have a chance to talk about them because we had such an awesome conversation without them. Be a repeat but guest. Yeah, so definitely get on there. There's some great blogs on there for you to have a read um, to go a bit further with some of the amazing wisdom and insights that Sarah has to be able to share with us. So thank you so much for your time, Sarah. I really appreciated yeah, that. And I'm sure we could have gone down so many other rabbit holes. Thank this you. was great. I really appreciate it. Today is turning into the most curious adventure I've ever had. Yeah.